0: following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. So I want you to start this morning by imagining that you had this once-in-a-lifetime, unique, awesome opportunity... To meet Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now the time is not right yet for Jesus to have his full return, where you know he comes in the clouds and he gathers up all of the saints to be with him forever. But he's heard the cries of so many of His people, and so Jesus puts the word out around the world that he will be paying a visit to several places, some in-person visits to various different areas of the world for just one day at a time so that people can see him, they can talk to him, they can hear from him, they can interact with him, and they can just know that he's still real. Well, as exciting as that sounds, you're not thinking you have a chance to see him. I mean, you know, he's going to only go to so many places, and once he announces where, you're not going to be able to get within a mile of that place. But hey, At least it'll be fascinating to read about on the internet, right? And to see some of this on TV. I mean, nobody's had a chance like this for like 2,000 years. Unless they die. That's really not where you want to go. But you're surprised because the announcement comes that one of the chosen places is this park with a big grassy field just a mile down the road from your house. And he's going to be there tomorrow. So you do have a shot at this. So... As soon as you find out the news, within five minutes, you've grabbed some stuff, you've run out the door, and you're heading on your way down to the park. You're prepared to spend the night outside waiting for Jesus to arrive. When you get there, there's already a few hundred other people camped out ahead of you, but you still get a spot on the grass, so you're pumped. This is going to happen. You have made it. Just another hour, the park is packed. There's not another room for another soul to be there. No square inch of lawn left. Except for that, you notice that someone thought ahead. I mean, Jesus needs a place to be, right? So somebody has placed a metal folding chair just up in the front of the lawn, something that they had with them and they were able to put out there without going home and losing their spot. So no one sleeps that night. And the next morning, just as the sun crests over the horizon, it hits your eyes in a way that causes you to squint and look away. And then blinking as your eyes adjust to the morning light, you look back to the front of the lawn, and, and there he is. Jesus Christ himself is standing in a plain old neighborhood park. And somehow, even though you've never seen him before, you know it's him. Deep down in the bottom of your soul. It doesn't look quite like all the pictures you've seen, and yet there's still no question. He's fantastic to look at. He's like shining with light, Powerful, And when you look at him, it's like you can see things like love and compassion coming out of him. And yet there's also this determination in him that makes you tremble. At first, the crowd erupts with shouts, with noise, with standing, and then the pushing starts. Now, you never thought that when you went to see Jesus in a local park, you might get trampled to death. But that thought comes now. But Jesus sees all this and simply asks all of the crowd to be peaceful with one another, to be still, and to be seated. And impossibly, they do. There's something about Jesus' presence that commands you to listen up and to do what he says. Jesus addresses the crowd to let them know how this is going to work today. He would like to teach them all for about an hour about his Father's will. And then he will be happy To spend a brief individual moment with every person present in the park today, which would likely take him the rest of the day. And after saying this, he sits down and begins to teach. His teaching is captivating, it's interesting, it's fresh, and yet familiar. It's like you've heard it before, and it's also like you've never heard it before. It challenges you, it convicts you, it encourages you all at once, and you're almost just 100% absorbing it, except that you're distracted by what's coming next. Whenever Jesus is done teaching, you know you are going to have your own personal moment with him face-to-face. Should you ask for something? Should you tell him something about yourself? No, he already knows everything. Uh, Should you quote, a Bible verse? What's the right way to handle this? Well, Jesus finishes up his teaching, and then he opens up the invitation for people to come forward for their moments. And at this point, the crowd stands up and gets full of chatter and restlessness. But since Jesus had promised that he would stay for every person, the mob is orderly enough, and it slowly filters to the front. And one person at a time has a personal 30-second conversation with jesus your moment will take about two hours to come but it finally does and when it does you still don't really know what to expect you haven't really been able to see what's been happening in front of you until there's just a few people in front of you and they just spoke a few words quietly and jesus spoke a few words quietly to them and he gave them a hug and they moved on rumors are floating through the crowds that some people are being healed and that Jesus has given others some extraordinary promises about their future. Good things to come in their lives. Hmm. Well, now it's your turn. You step up to Jesus, who's still sitting. You can barely look at him in the eye because he created the universe. You think maybe it's not a good idea to stand up straight while he's sitting in a chair. So you get down on your knees and you fumble for words. And one comes out, Lord, Uh, and you start again, Lord. And this is where Jesus stops you and says to you these words that you will never forget. I don't know who you think I am, but I'm most certainly not your Lord. I don't even know you. Security, can we get this intruder out of here? Isn't that a terrible story? <laughs> it's horrible. Does anybody want to leave now? Because I will understand. I mean, I won't even be offended. Go right ahead. Because I know what I did. I mean, I basically just told you this, what was supposed to be a great story. It started out good. And I had these promises of better things to come. And then right there at the very end, bam, I gave you a terrible ending. And not only that, I made it worse because I made you I invited you. I made you be the main character in that story that receives that terrible ending. But the reason I did so was with all good intentions. And I hope you'll agree with me. Because I want you to ask yourself a question that I asked myself when I thought about this scenario. And the question is this, why is that story so terrible? Really, what specifically ruins that story? Because as I imagine myself in this story, here's the explanation I come up with. Well, it's a terrible story because of what Jesus says at the end. Because Jesus rejects me. I mean, I liked everything up to that part. The Jesus who would care so much as to come down from heaven in the flesh. The Jesus that would show up in my neighborhood and talk with someone as plain and ordinary as me. The Jesus who was both powerful and gentle at the same time. The Jesus whose teaching would blow me away. The Jesus who would heal people. The Jesus who would promise great things for people. The Jesus who would take individual time for every single person, even if it took him all day. That's the Jesus I know. That's the Jesus I love. That's the Jesus I want to finish this story but the Jesus that finishes up the story defies my expectations of him. And so, you know what I do? I look at the story and I know what the problem of the story is. I don't like the Jesus of that story. Doesn't matter if he did all those great things to get that story started off. My interpretation of the story says that Jesus ruined the story at the end. How could Jesus be that way to anyone? The Jesus I serve wouldn't be, or would he? See, actually, this story, which is totally fiction, just made it up, you know, nothing better to do. This story is totally fiction, but it was inspired by a story that was an actual teaching direct from Jesus' lips himself. You want to know the truth of who Jesus is? Well, there's no one better to tell you than Jesus himself. And so let's look at this teaching. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Just a short teaching that Jesus gives. And he says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, uh, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. For the past three weeks, we've been going through a series of teachings at CRC to ask ourselves the question: Who's in charge? Not who do we say is in charge, not who do we believe should be in charge, but who actually is in charge of our lives. Because as Jesus pointed out, it doesn't matter so much who you call Lord, whom you call Master. A lot of us have gotten that one figured out. But it really matters who's in the driver's seat of your life. You'll notice that Jesus says, what matters? It's whose will you're actually doing. Not whose name you're calling on, not even what spiritual accomplishments you can chalk up to your name, even if you somehow have done miracles in his name. Nope, it's not what he's looking for. The big question God himself is going to ask is this one. Who was in charge? Who was in charge of your life? Was it God or was it anyone else? Was it not God? And as for those who know how to pretend really well, and those who who fool themselves, well, Jesus himself, Jesus, yet the real Jesus, takes on a much darker picture than we'd like to see. He starts to look a little bit more like the Jesus from my terrible story that I made up. Because the perfect, life-giving, healer God will look many, the Bible says, many people right between the eyes, and he will say words that they will never forget. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. But I thought God was love. I thought Jesus was sent to demonstrate this unconditional love and to die for us, to save our lives. Which is it? I mean, does Jesus want to be my Savior, which requires something of him? Or does he want to be my Lord, which requires something of me? Does he want to give me every good thing? I think there's something in the Bible that says that. Or does he want me to give him every good thing that I have available to give? Is he supposed to love me or am I supposed to love him? And then the answer to all of these questions, of course, is both. Savior and Lord. Giver of all good things and the one who says what you should do with those things. Giver of extravagant love and one who requires love in return. Now, it's, it's small-minded of us, it's self-centered, it's low, and it ain't pretty, but most of us have this great desire to cut God in half. Please, God, let this be a one-sided relationship, your side. Save me, bless me, love me, give me everything I need. Oh, and one more thing, God, please stay out of my way. Amen. Now, few people will say it that bluntly, that blatantly, but it's there. And I would bet that we have all wanted that, at least to some degree, at some place in our life. Because think about it. What if God agreed? He said, okay, fine. All right. I'm tired of trying to have a real relationship with you and growing you into the perfect character that I've designed you for. So... I'm tired of helping you become more like me, only to be rejected over and over again. So I am no longer going to require anything from those of you that will be accepting my new option B. Option B will allow you to remain completely the same, living in whatever destructive pattern you so may choose. I won't even interfere. I will just guarantee you a spot in heaven Regular supernatural blessings until that time, and love notes every Tuesday telling you how great you are. Option B is open to the first 1 billion people who sign up. You know that sign up sheet would be full in the first 24 hours. And a lot of you would put your names on it, we're honest. Because there's something deep down inside of us that wants a Savior and not a Lord. We want blessings and not requirements. And the sad part is that we see those two things as opposites. If God is giving us requirements, well, then he's not blessing us. That's not true. In fact, the argument could be made that the requirements that he gives us are blessings to us and for us. But that's another sermon. So if you know your John 3.16, John 3.16 being the, one of the most memorized and quoted verses of the Bible, if you know John 3.16, you'll know this. The Bible tells us that God loved the world so much that he gave what? He gave the best gift that could ever be given. And that gift wasn't miracles. It wasn't cash. And it wasn't world peace. The fullness of God's love was demonstrated through giving his Son. The best gift that could be given was a divine person who would be both Savior and Lord. And so for the past few weeks, each of us pastors that have been speaking, first Amanda, then Trevor, and now myself, we've been bringing you the same message, but kind of in a different flavor. And then we've focused on one aspect of our lives in order to see what it looks like when God's in charge there. Amanda talked about how God wants to be in charge of our relationships. Trevor talked about how God wants to be the Lord of our finances. And the series certainly could have included more. We could have just gone on for weeks, and we're not going to, so don't worry. But we could have gone on for weeks. We could talk about Jesus wanting to be the Lord of our vocation, the, the major calling of our lives at the moment, be that at home or in the workplace or in the school setting. We could have asked what it looks like when Jesus is Lord of our sexuality, when he's Lord of our parenting or our time or our plans for the future. We could even talk about what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our own identity, who we are at our core how we understand ourselves and see ourselves. And the list could go on. As for me, though, in the time remaining, I get to round out this mini-series by talking about what it looks like to have Jesus as the Lord of our spiritual journey. Now, Canyon Ridge Church, if you've been coming for any length of time, you've probably heard us say that we understand that everyone is on their own journey of faith and that no two journeys are exactly alike. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's what we expect. And so we encourage each person each week that when they're here, what we encourage you to do is just find out where God is going to meet you in your place, in your journey, and what the next steps are that he's calling you to take from this place. We also constantly talk about something that we're very passionate about. The fact that a spiritual journey centered on Jesus is best described as building a relationship. It's building a relationship, a real, loving relationship with God himself. I mean, too often we've had the Christian faith journey been characterized by it's a set of beliefs, or it's all about what you know. It's about how much Bible you can fit inside your cranium. Or it's all about the rituals and the practices that you repeatedly do. Or it's about the set of rules that you live by. And don't get me wrong, this journey certainly involves all of those things to some degree. What we believe matters. What we learn is going to be vital to how our relationship progresses. What we practice may very well be the proof of where we're at in that relationship. And we do live by a different set of standards than we would if we were on a different journey. But those aren't the main thing the main thing and the most primary way we understand our journey of faith is that it is a love relationship with God himself. And this love relationship is both the context in which our journey exists and building that relationship and moving forward in it is also the substance of that journey. So for today's talk, you'll hear me use the terms journey and relationship somewhat interchangeably, and I want you to to know that that is intentional. Now, see, for many of us here today, understanding our faith journey as a relationship has changed our lives. Maybe you have a story of how you grew up in a faith journey that was all about rules and beliefs and nothing more. And this message of how God wants a relationship with you, that's changed everything. That's great. But it's easy to latch on to the message that God wants a relationship with me without really ever asking the question, well, what kind of relationship does God want with me? I mean, we deal in this culture, we deal with sound bites all the time, and we do it, we love them, we deal with them pretty well. So we get the sound bite that says, God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. Great, I can remember that, I can follow that, I'll take it from here. But where do you ever hear the sound bite that says, God loves you and he wants to invite you to be a part of a specific kind of relationship? That's not a soundbite. That doesn't work. I need more information after I hear that. I have more questions. I need to learn more. What specific kind of relationship? And so the answer comes back around to this question of who's in charge. Jesus invites us into a real loving relationship where he is in charge of both the relationship and the rest of our lives. In fact, a better way to say it is that he invites us into a relationship where he's in charge of that relationship, and that that relationship defines the rest of our lives. Really? All the rest of our lives? But isn't my spiritual journey just one part of the bigger whole? I mean, it's fairly natural for us to understand that when we invite Jesus to be the Lord of our journey then you know, certain things would change. You know, we'd stop looking around elsewhere to find the answers to our deep spiritual questions about meaning and purpose. And, and we would generally look to the teachings of Jesus to be our source of truth and wisdom. And then when we do spiritual things like praying or worshiping or you know, uh, meaningful ceremonies like weddings and funerals, it makes sense that those spiritual things would be pointed at Jesus. No one else. That stuff makes sense to me. Jesus is Lord of my spiritual journey. Jesus gets priority over the quote-unquote spiritual things. And I don't want to discount that view because I think that's a starting point for a lot of people. I think that's a valid step in their journey. Because maybe your, maybe your relationship with Jesus started way back in a place where you were hostile to Jesus. You didn't want anything to do with him. And then it turned to a place where you were curious about him, perhaps He has something of worth to share with you, perhaps. Over time, maybe it moved to a place where you were open to learning some things for him and said, there is value here. I do want to know him more. And then after that, you came to a point where you were willing to give him everything spiritual in your life. And that was a huge step forward. That's a big change in the relationship. And... And I want you to know, it's important to realize that it's ultimately not where Jesus wants your relationship to end up. Remember in that teaching that we looked at of his earlier, there were people doing great spiritual things in Jesus' name, and he sent them away. Why? Because Jesus is not offering that kind of relationship with us. We talked earlier about how we have all these different areas in our lives that we either do or do not offer Jesus lordship in. Relationships, vocation, parenting, plans for the future, etc. But when it comes to our relationship with him, he's not willing to make that relationship just another isolated part of our lives. He's offering us an arrangement where our relationship with him is actually the preeminent thing, that defines all of the areas of our life. He invites us on a spiritual journey, but that journey is not an extra thing that we tack on to the rest of our life. It's a journey that encompasses all of these other things and seeks to redefine them. So our spiritual journey, our relationship with Jesus Christ, it isn't just limited to what we see as the deep spiritual matters, but that relationship lays claim to everything else we do, our finances, the use of our time. And so all of these other areas, identity, relationships, sexuality, the whole list becomes part of our spiritual journey, such that what I do with my money, what I do with my body, what I do in my relationships, the way I make significant decisions, all of these things become spiritual matters, even if they never were before. And they all become just as important to my relationship with God, if not more, than how I worship a church or how much I know about the Bible and how often I pray. This is the journey that Jesus invites us on, one where he leads us in all things. This is the relationship that he offers, one where he defines us. If you remember what Jesus said counts, it wasn't who you were praying to. Again, we get that one right often enough. we know the name to use, but it 's whose will you were doing, who is defining your life? Now, we struggle with this greatly for at least two reasons that I could think of. one is we 're not used to this okay there's no other healthy relationship, healthy relationship that we have that is the same. I mean because sure, we have meaningful relationships in our life that influence things all the time. I would expect meaningful relationships to influence my finances and how I make decisions and all this kind of stuff. But none of them claims that they should define everything about me, who I am, and what I do. Second reason we have troubles with this is, well, we just like to be in charge. I mean, I agree with every decision I make. Matter of fact, nobody makes more sensible decisions than me. According to me. And so here's what we do: we try to accept Jesus's offer to be Lord and Savior of His life, uh, Lord and Savior of our lives, but not His terms. And His terms are this: but I also have to be Savior and Lord of your life. It's like we tell Him, Jesus, you can have the job title; you've got it. No arguments for me. But I'm just going to go ahead and take all those pesky little responsibilities from you, okay? You don't have to worry about that. And I don't think we always do this on purpose, but we end up, perhaps. Often, trying to define God instead of allowing God to define us. Jesus has invited us into this specific kind of relationship, this relationship where he's Lord and we're not, and this is one where he defines us, one where his Lordship extends to all things. And because we're afraid or because we're selfish or because we're immature, we can offer him the exact opposite of what he's asked for. I mean, we do this. We try to redefine Jesus to be the God that we wanted him to be instead of the perfect God he is. You get that? We try to redefine Jesus to be the God we wanted him to be instead of the perfect God that he is. I mean, how many of us have written Jesus out of whole parts of our life entirely? Jesus, you can define me. You just can't define my finances. Jesus, you are Lord of my life, but you are not Lord of my time. Jesus, you can have everything, but I've got some really specific plans for my future that I can't have you messing with. Jesus, I want to accept you as Lord, but I should probably let you know up front you're only going to get half of my life. Just half. And here's the kicker. We can fool ourselves into believing that we have given Jesus everything he's asked for. Jesus invites us into a relationship where he's Lord, where he defines us, and we offer him back the exact opposite a relationship where we are in charge and we define him. We tell him what he should be interested in. And we don't even notice the difference because we heard a sound bite. God, you wanted a relationship. He gave you a relationship. But it's like this it's like, if, it's, it's like Jesus asked us for a nice, ripe apple. And we said, Great, here's a moldy orange something completely different and worse than what he asked for. Then when somebody says to us, well, did you give Jesus what he asked for? We say, well, yeah, he asked for fruit, didn't he? I gave him fruit. But Jesus doesn't want just any old relationship with you and me. There's a really big difference between a moldy orange and a ripe apple. There's a really big difference between a relationship where I try to tell Jesus who he should be and a relationship where I let Jesus define who I should be. So what does it look like if Jesus Christ is actually the Lord of our spiritual journey? What if we're not just offering him whatever kind of relationship we want to give him, but instead we're actually saying, yes, Jesus, I want to accept the relationship that you are offering, letting you define me, not the other way around. What does that look like? Let me give you four characteristics, and then we'll wrap up. First of all, if Jesus is Lord of your relationship with him, then you will have this unique measurement for what it means to love him. Because when we rightly understand the relationship that God desires for us, we will learn that to love him is to obey him. To love him is to obey him. Jesus taught this to his disciples very plainly. In John chapter 14, he tells them, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Some deep scripture to meditate on right there. Hard to understand. Uh, But as clear as he makes it there, it was clear from the beginning. It was clear from the end. Earlier in the Bible, God tells us people that obedience is more important to him than how they worship him. Later in the Bible, Jesus' disciple, John, also tells us very clearly, whoever even says they know Jesus is lying if they're not obeying what he commands. So it's very clear throughout God's word that he's not just looking for any old type of relationship. He's looking for one specifically characterized by our obedience to him. And we naturally don't like this. We naturally pull away from this. Why? Because this isn't what we think about when we think of love, is it? I mean, think of all the people you love. And when I say that, are you thinking of all the people you obey the most? No. When you go to the movies to see some sappy romantic comedy, and I know some of you do this, you go to the movies to see those. Sappy romantic comedy. Are the two people that are falling in love in that movie really just learning how to obey each other in some really neat way? No. How many Hallmark cards have you received on Valentine's Day where the card promises that the person who gave it to you will obey you forever? Hopefully none. (laughs) Hopefully, none, because between human beings, this idea is a little creepy. I mean, maybe a little dysfunctional, actually. But hear me out on this. Because our relationship with God is unique, it is different than any human relationship we have. It should be. God loves us differently, and He loves us so much better than any human relationship. And the relationship He offers us is one where He is Lord. That isn't a relationship you should have with any of your human friends. And so we love him We love him first and foremost when we obey him. And we dishonor him or we reject him first and foremost when we disobey him. Secondly, if Jesus is Lord of our relationship with him, it means we'll not pick and choose where to obey. In other words, we will let Jesus define us, all of us, instead of the other way around. You see, if I tell Jesus what areas of my life he can speak into and what ones he can't, that puts me in charge of the relationship. That puts me in a position where I'm telling Jesus what he should care about, where he should work in my life. Guess what? Jesus isn't interested in that relationship. If he's truly Lord, then he gets access to everything. Third, and don't miss this one. If Jesus is Lord of our relationship with him, we don't need to freak out. We need to obey what we know. And the first part is just as important as the second part. We don't need to freak out. We need to obey what we know. And I want to spend a moment to explain this because I think it helps put things a little bit in perspective. Because if all we have is those first two characteristics, that to love God is to obey Him, and secondly, that we need to obey Him in every area of our lives, well, we might think that we are staring up at one impossible task, that either we get 100% or we fail. Right? Because if the standard is obeying God in everything, who's going to get that one right? Who's even going to know what everything includes? That's why it's important that we understand this point. We don't need to freak out about this, but we do need to obey what we know. See, faith is a journey, and God's not stupid. He understands perfectly well that you can't take step two until you've taken step one. I mean, think about his disciples. Almost every single one of his disciples would eventually give up their lives for him. Now, that's pretty extreme devotion. That's pretty extreme obedience to God. But on day one, all they had to do was leave behind their fishing nets so they could follow Jesus. They had to obey what Jesus was asking of them right then and right there. That's it. I got two boys, ages six and nine. I tell you, neither one of them has a job. Neither one of them pays bills yet. Neither one of them drives a car, even when they ask really nicely. And, you know, even neither one of them can even set an alarm clock. And, you know, I was just thinking about this morning. I had to open a new jug of milk. And I was like, I don't even think either one of my boys could, like, open a jug of milk safely when it was brand new. Now, am I concerned that my boys cannot do everything that I would expect a grown and mature adult to do? I mean, how are they ever going to survive without a job or being able to drive or open milk? I'm not concerned about it at all. Because that's not where they are in their journeys yet in life. And there's still plenty for them to learn and to obey right where they're at now. We say it often here. We believe it. We're all at a different place in our faith journey. And we believe God can meet us exactly where we're at. So we don't need to get all uptight about how far behind Mother Teresa we are. What we do need to do is obey what we know. Obey what God's put in front of us right now. Let God define our next steps. No matter what area of life he chooses to want to make those next steps in. And finally, when Jesus is Lord of our relationship with him, we can expect the blessings that God has promised. We don't just hope for them. We don't just dream about them. If we are putting him as Lord of our lives, we can expect them. Nobody's better at keeping a promise than God. We can count on him. And almost every one of those amazing promises of blessing in the Bible is tied to our obedience. Now, why is that? Is it because when we obey enough, we have earned a blessing? No, not at all. It's because when we have obeyed God and put him as Lord of our lives, we are in a right relationship with him, which is where he promises to bless us. We've put ourselves in the right position to be blessed. And all the promises of blessing and prosperity that you read in the Bible, the promises of God's presence to be with you, the promises that God will meet our needs, the promises even that God will be our Savior and that God will give us eternal life, those promises aren't given to just anyone. They're not just given to anyone with any kind of relationship to Jesus, but they are given to anyone who sets Jesus apart as their Lord. God's offering us something more incredible than we can fathom, a real Love relationship with the creator of the universe that is personal, that is powerful, and that is eternal. doesn't go away. But he considered it, and he decided that there would be no option B. He won't be our savior alone. He won't let us define him however we want him to be. Now, let me tell you why I think that is. He knows option B is a disaster. Option B requires nothing but selfishness from us. And in fact, it feeds it. Instead, God offers us from wherever we're at, with all of our mistakes, our baggage, our rebellion, and even those darkest parts of our life that we wish weren't there, He offers us the chance to become something new. Someone new new, someone defined by him, defined by the perfect one, defined by the highest love and the greatest power. Will we accept his infinity?